1: Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story.
0: Hello, this is Will Hutchins from Espresso Capital. Espresso excited to be supporting the E2 podcast. As a leading North American venture debt firm, we're passionate about helping founders and entrepreneurs build successful businesses. We're also passionate about helping founders retain control of the businesses they build. Since 2009, Espresso has provided founder friendly, non dilutive capital solutions ranging in size from 1 million to 10 million to over 250 fast growing North American technology companies. Please visit us at espressocapital.com to learn more and join the many founders
1: that have used Espresso to help accelerate their growth. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today is my great conversation with Jason Gaynard, named one of Forbes' top networkers to watch. Jason is the founder of one of the world's most exclusive events for entrepreneurs, Mastermind Talks. This invite-only three-day retreat has a lower acceptance rate than Harvard University. Jason also regularly hosts a selective and highly curated series of intimate dinners for business leaders called Mastermind Dinners. He's got a podcast called Community Made. Highly recommend you check that out. He's also been featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, Business Insider, and Tim Ferriss's best-selling book, Tools of Titans, among others. In this episode, we discuss Jason's personal and professional transition from running a business he hated to launching Mastermind Talks, how he went about finding alignment, how money and happiness scale very differently, the business of curation, why it's not about how many people you can count in your network, but how many you can actually count on, and much more. So, with that intro aside, let's get to the very first episode of 2019. Here is Jason Gaynard. How did the MMT event go this year in Park City?
0: Oh, great. Definitely, there's always these refinements we can make, but, you know our 2016 event had a approval rating of 9.73 out of 10 last year. Carmel was 9.90 out of 10. And this one was 9.81 out of 10. So a small step backwards. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we definitely Cabo 2019 is sold out. Uh, and we have a venue for 2020 that we're going to start selling in Q1 of next year. So yeah, things are, things are good with MMT. Well, it's, it's tough because, uh, when we hit that nine, 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 zero, um, you're like, yeah, like how how can we make it much better? Um, and you know, with with Park City, there's things that we did that were just that went beyond expectations as far as how they were received. And then there's one thing I did that went kind of below expectations, didn't necessarily go as planned, but to me it was almost it was almost empowering because we've been on this like hot streak ever since we started in 2013, where every event got better. And in Park City, something didn't work out. Yet, you know, we only offered 75 spots for Cabo, we had 143 people. So almost 80% of the group hand in credit cards to be considered for those 75 spots. So to me, it just it was just a nice relief that like, yes, we can take chances and screw up and people will give us kind of second chances, so to speak.
1: That thing that you said didn't work out, did you know at the time that it wasn't working or did you have to collect the data in order for you to realize, oh, I didn't know that that was a miss?
0: No, I, I, I had apprehensions about it. Basically, I let somebody facilitate one of the mornings, like a completeness. But in the in the context of the whole event, uh, it was definitely one of the, the low points. So, yeah, and I knew I knew I had a feeling leading into it. I, I knew while it was happening and definitely the, the the feedback. I've been able to build a really great culture of feedback with the community where they're 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 not shy of kind of sharing, you know, honest feedback because they know we take it to heart and they know that we take action on it. And we've shown that in the past. So, you know, they, they let me know, uh, <laughs> certain individuals let me know that they weren't necessarily, that was like a low point of the event for them.
1: So I'm going to read you an excerpt from your LinkedIn bio. You've probably been sure. asked this a, a bunch of times, but this quote just stands right out. So I was stuck on the entrepreneurial hamster wheel, building a business I hated to buy things I didn't need to impress people. I didn't like, there's like so much emotion packaged up <laughs> in this sentence <laughs> What did your life look like a few years ago? Oh boy.
0: Uh, well, I I originally you know started my entrepreneurial journey where I started a service based business. And for context, I dropped out of high school. I was not much of an academic, but I started a service based business, and I realized that service based businesses are a little tricky to scale. So I pivoted into an online product business, which I grew to about six, $7 million a year over four years of no outside investments. And uh, I was living my model of success. I was traveling the world, I was making a ton of money, but I was slowly kind of climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I got to a point where I realized that I was earning 22 times the national average income and that was bothersome to me because I was not 22 times happier than the average male, and I was not 22 times healthier. I actually had kidney complications because of stress, because of a bad business partnership at the age of 23. So I realized that money and happiness scale very differently. Mm-hmm. And around that time, again, seven years into my entrepreneurial journey, is when I kind of came to that discovery that, you know, I was kind of pursuing the wrong goals, and I built the, you know, the the wrong business, and, and to impress people I didn't like, and and all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, I became comfortable with the idea of scaling that business down to zero because when I realized my heart was not in it and that I wasn't in alignment, I, I kind of wanted to get out right away. Um, and I could have sold that business because uh, it was very profitable. But for me, I would have had to position the business for sale. I would have had to find a buyer. I would have to do some kind of earn out, which meant, you know, that's probably a year, year and a half process at least. Mm-hmm. and I just couldn't do it to myself. So became comfortable with the idea of scaling the business down to zero, but the minute I made that decision and decided to scale down over about a, a year-long period, I disconnected from the business. Uh, I didn't want really anything to do with it. I mean, I, I would show up once a month at best um, just to kind of like pop in, and I was never great at hiring people, so I had B-level people who had C-level people under them, and the business just kind of cannibalized from the inside out, and uh on the way down two things happened that were beyond my control one was a bank called a loan and then the other one was a merchant services provider put our account on 100 percent reserve uh unannounced and both of those things when the dust settled um in august of 2012 i was a quarter million dollars in debt and um a friend of mine posted on facebook that uh they had an extra ticket to go see seth godin in new york i got there and it turned out the the theme of the workshop was the connection economy and how there's huge value connecting like-minded individuals. And at the time, I felt just very isolated as an entrepreneur. So I started these things called Mastermind Dinners, where I'd invite eight entrepreneurs up for dinner with the core focus of connecting them. And the first one I did, I almost canceled two hours prior, because I'm like, nobody's going to see value in this. They're going to think I completely wasted their time. But thankfully, it turned out to be a great success. And I continued to do these dinners, even though I was paying for them out of pocket. People thought I was, I was crazy to do it. But for me, I... I really thought that within a short period of time that I'd be declaring bankruptcy, uh, which I've never done before. But I th- I mean, I didn't know how much more rock bottom I could hit. So continued on with the dinners. And then uh, shortly after, thankfully, had an opportunity to do an event with a friend of mine named Tim Ferriss. I had no clue what I was doing when I came to the planning of the event. And that turned out to be what, on some level, has made it successful, was that ignorance and the fact that we didn't play by you know, the rules, so to speak. And it's actually much more closer to the planning of a wedding than it is a, a conference uh, with the, like the assigned seating and the curation and that kind of stuff. So that's how my journey into the event space and the community space kind of began in that, that whole, I guess, stage before it, I guess you could say.
1: Let me rewind back to that soul searching that you were doing. Sure. So was there like a, a moment, a particular life event that happened that made you realize like this business isn't working for me? Do you remember what the particular turning point was where you said like, I'm not going to sell this business. I'm not enjoying myself. I'm going to wind this down to the, to zero and work on something that I'm truly passionate about.
0: Yeah, well, the thing about memories is that the mind polishes the past. So to me, like there's a bunch of stuff that all happened at once. You know, as far as the sequence of events of what happened first, I, I, I'm not necessarily sure, but there was definitely a few things. There was, again, the realization I was earning 22 times national average income and I wasn't happy in the business. I was in an industry that, For context, we sold and resold kind of concert tickets and sporting event tickets.
1: Yeah, this is Um, Tickets Canada,
0: correct? Yeah, so that was the brand. We were striving on some level, if your listeners are familiar with like a StubHub, we were basically almost like the Canadian version of that. We we at first started off as a wholesaler uh, and we would sell tickets through StubHub and a bunch of other kind of retailers. And then we saw the writing on the wall that being a wholesaler wasn't necessarily, didn't have a good future, I guess you could say. So we moved and pivoted into the retail side of things and opened retail stores and had an e-commerce platform and all that kind of stuff. The only reason I share that is because I I hate concerts and I don't go to sporting events, Um, so it's hard to to you know when somebody wants to buy like two thousand dollars worth of you know Toronto Maple Leaf tickets. um, It's hard to be excited uh, about that when you're not you know a fan of the product so to speak. So uh, I was just out of alignment right out of the gate. And it's just like most entrepreneurs, I was told to pick a business based on opportunity and proximity. How can I make the most amount of money as quickly as possible, given, given my limited skill set, I guess you could say. Um, and I just found myself in that, that space. And again, very profitable, but I wasn't in alignment, didn't enjoy the the line of work. And also there was another incident when um, I was driving my car one day, and this all kind of, all this stuff happened within a short period of time, but I was driving my car one day and I got to a set of lights and I had no music playing or anything like that. And I remember looking at myself through the rear view mirror and hearing this voice uh, that said, your dad never said he was proud of you. Mm-hmm. And I remember breaking down into tears because I don't feel like I have a bad relationship with my father at all. But at that point in time, I realized one of, what was my biggest driver to succeed in business was to basically – prove him wrong.
1: do you think that there was even more pressure on you that you were putting on yourself maybe personally or superficially because you said you dropped out of high school and maybe you had something else to prove?
0: not necessarily because I almost saw the whole not like dropping out of high school almost as weird as it sounds like a badge of honor in the sense that not even a badge of honor it's just I was never an academic like I from the time I was young and when throughout high school I worked full-time hours at other places like I worked at a ikea and every time they do a catalog drop like everybody's all hands on deck within the company i take like three weeks off of school because i didn't want to be at school (laughs) i come back and i get all kinds of flack from my teachers and that kind of stuff so i actually yeah i I don't um I, i mean maybe on some level i try to to show that like you know traditional education isn't for everyone and you can still be successful without you know that um without going through traditional education. But it, all my mentors at the time um, had very similar models of success, which was just you know make as much money as possible. And I, I don't fault them for it. I mean, I, I chose these mentors and ultimately that was just the, the path that I was on. Uh, but like I said, it was partly to, to prove to, to peers that I could do it, partly to prove to my you know family that I could do it, partly to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, so those are some of the drivers.
1: When you when you moved chapters and you moved uh, out of tickets business hmm. and into MMT, um, you mentioned mentors. So were there new mentors that you brought on that were sort of helping guide you? in terms of finding alignment, finding what you were going to do next?
0: It's weird because I had uh, almost a bad taste in my mouth, mouth with past mentors, only in the sense that they were, again, fantastic, uh, and they helped me tremendously on the business acumen side of things, but I wasn't fulfilled. And you know, looking back, they weren't necessarily fulfilled individuals either. So after that, I put a huge emphasis on finding the perfect mentor, somebody who made you know great money financially, was also a great father was also, you know, well-respected in the community, you know, was going to leave an incredible legacy, all these kind of things. And ultimately had a really hard time finding that individual and then realized there is no such perfect person. And that's unfair to set those expectations that you'll find that perfect person. Cause inevitably anybody you meet, you really get to know them uh, a little better. You realize, you know, they have their faults cause we're all human. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, I, I almost adopted a mentality of like a tribe of mentors. So I have like a mentor that is a great father, uh, it may, you know, may have be okay in business and all that kind of stuff, but he is a phenomenal, phenomenal father or somebody who, you know, a friend of mine, Ben Greenfield is a really well-respected triathlete. So like when I think of like health and fitness, like he's my mentor in that, that, that domain. So I've almost created a, like a tribe of mentors of sorts, because, uh, like I said, it was almost unfair to, to set the expectation that I'll, I'll find one person to be the, the, the be all end all, uh, when it comes to to mentors.
1: So, tribe of mentors, good segue. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> Tim Ferriss. Um, let's talk about the first mastermind dinner event. So, tell me about the whole Tim Ferriss book buying stunt.
0: So, yeah, when I was in the kind of transition period, I was doing those dinners, and historically, would wake up really early in the morning because I was—I had a daughter. Uh, well, I still have a daughter. She's six now, but. I was a a new father at the time and my daughter was six months old and I was having a really hard time adapting to being a dad, Um, you know, with all the transition stuff going on. And also I kind of realized that uh, one of the core reasons why I chose entrepreneurship is because on some level I'm a little bit of a control freak. I like to have full control of my time and those kind of things and nothing throws your time and your notion of time Uh, and control really out the window more than having a child. So I started to wake up really early in the morning because I'm like, I can't control the time that she's awake, but I can control the time before or the time after uh, she goes to bed. So I wake up at 4.30 in the morning, and um, Tim made this post on his blog about this book bundle campaign. And the reason for this is because he was – Banned from all retail distribution. Uh, so Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Costco, everybody. And the reason for that was he was the first big name author to publish through Amazon, and the kind of traditional, you know, retail uh, of the book publishing space really wanted to make an example out of him because Amazon was just becoming too big from a retail side, and now they're getting into publishing. So Tim, being one of the best book marketers I know, created this book bundle campaign where if you bought five books, you get additional resources. You bought twenty-five books, maybe do some kind of webinar with you. He had this Hail Mary package that if you bought four thousand books, he'd do two speaking engagements. So I reached out to Tim directly and I said, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll take the package. And he replied right away because it was he was still up. He's in it was San Francisco time at the time, um, so he was he stays up late. And so I think I emailed him probably like five in the morning. He replied right away. He's like, "We'll we'll connect tomorrow morning when I, when I wake up. <laughs> so, uh, we, I, that was kind of the deal. I bought 4,000 copies of the book. It was $84,000. The problem was, is that again, we, we didn't know how we were going to make rent. And in my last business, I didn't, I, all my previous businesses, I never raised money. I built them all with credit cards and from a limiting, like his belief perspective, I've always been terrible at asking for things from people. And that's just the way kind of I was raised is, you know, to do everything on your own. And that's the, you know, the proud way to do it and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I had no choice. My back was up, up against the wall. I had to come up with $84,000 in three days because I had the order had to go through that week. I called the first person and he said, uh, you know, that sounds super interesting. Can you come back to me with numbers? And I told him, yeah, sure I can. But Ultimately, I don't think in numbers as an entrepreneur. Generally speaking, like I think broad numbers, and if it makes sense, then I'll go for it. I don't think uh, you know nitty gritty numbers. And also at the same time, I'm like, this is an industry I have no experience in. I don't even know how it works. I don't even know if Tim is worth eighty four thousand dollars. So I'm like, I'm probably not going to be able to provide him with good numbers, but I'll keep them in my back pocket. The second person I called uh, said, "Sounds you know awesome. Let's start a business together, fifty 50 And I said, "You know that sounds great. I have one more person to call." Uh, the third person I called, I went. Probably halfway through the, the pitch, and he said, uh, "Just come pick up a check at my, to, uh, at my office tomorrow." And I didn't, I didn't keep him, I didn't keep him on the call any longer than that. Wow. I hung up, the phone. and the following morning, I got to his office probably like an hour early and was just waiting because I was hoping if he if he told me like, "Hey, you know what? I'm having second thoughts," I'd be like, "Well, dude, I'm already outside." <laughs> so uh, yeah, exactly. I ended up picking up that check, rushing to the bank, uh, wiring the money to Tim. And that's how we got him as the, the kind of anchor speaker for Mastermind Talks. And uh, I knew in November of 2012 that I was going to do the event. It wasn't until February of the following year that I actually officially like put it out to like Facebook and social media that I was doing this thing because I was terrified it was going to be a flop. Thankfully, it turned out to be a big success. What gave
1: you the confidence to finally put it out? So you said so you, you went through a few months of anxiety. Um, <laughs> do you remember... What was that particular vote of confidence that sort of gave you the courage to say, like, I'm doing this. I'm going to throw this out there.
0: Well, the the days are ticking (laughs) because I already had the venue locked in and I already had Tim locked in.
1: Yes, you had no Uh, choice. You had no choice. uh, You had to get over yourself.
0: Exactly. I can wait longer, but it's going to impact like any chance of me selling any tickets for this thing. So after, uh, yeah, two months of procrastinating, I guess, uh, I decided to finally uh, take the plunge and obviously glad I did. Okay, so so
1: what was the initial plan for that first event? So Tim's coming. Um, mm-hmm. You put this out on Facebook. Did you
0: have a plan? I reached out to like event planners because I didn't know how to plan an event, and I reached out to event planners, and uh, they didn't want to take on the event because it was too close. They thought it was going to be a flop, and on some level, rightly so. Like I said, I'm like four months out with no no past brand, no you know existing kind of uh, email list or no customer base or any of that kind of stuff. And I have no experience, so, um, I don't blame them for, for not wanting to, to, to tag along, I guess, so to speak. So, so yeah, I mean, leaning into it, um, we did a few things that, that thankfully kind of paid off. I was able to leverage Tim's kind of celebrity, even though, you know, he he was big back then, nowhere near as big as he is now. Um, and I didn't have the money to pay speakers back then. And uh, there's a saying that uh, constraints breeds creativity. And for me, like I was forced to be creative. So I, you know, a big portion of what goes into putting on an event or producing an event is speaker fees. And I just didn't have money to pay speakers. So what I did was I created a prize for the best talk is voted by the audience. And I used Tim as the anchor uh, speaker so that I could either A, get people who wanted to connect with Tim to speak at the event for free, or or B, people who are already friends with Tim, but they're never at the same place at the same time. So I could use the event almost as like a catalyst to uh, reconnect him and all of his friends. And ultimately, we got 15 speakers to to speak uh, and compete ultimately. And some of them were, you know, with Mark Echo from Echo Clothing and, and Mike McDermott from FreshBooks and Bruce Boontip from G Adventures and Danny Reese from Canada Goose. And uh, we had TED speakers like AJ Jacobs and Ryan Holiday and Lewis Howes and, and that kind of stuff. So we had a, it ultimately worked out beautifully.
1: And you I'm glad. Line
0: up. Yeah, it was. Well, the funny thing is, is that like that's what you'd want. And then after that, when we were building out this event, people thought the event was a scam because it almost looked like too good to be true. As far as all these speakers, and I'm like, I can't win. So, uh, also the event took place in Toronto, and, and generally, especially back then, there wasn't a ton of big entrepreneur events, you know, in the city. So it, was, it just caught people off guard. But thankfully, we had 4,200 entrepreneurs apply for that event, and we capped it at 150 people. And for me, the curation process, which has been key to our success was back then when I saw when the applications came in, if I thought somebody was a fit for the event, I'd send them an invitation. And if they secured their spot, then I'd do a phone call with them. And on that phone call, I was having a hard time trying to uh, assess, like, you know, if, uh, well, what, what was the criteria, I guess, that we're gonna use to, to select people. Because there's organizations like EO, where your business has to do seven figures, or YPO, your business has to do eight figures, and those kind of things. And those are okay models when you're trying to curate to scale, like EO is like thirteen thousand members. They've done a great job of building that community, and YPO is twenty thousand members. But you can have a hundred million dollar, a hundred million dollar business and not necessarily be a great person. Um, yes. So now <laughs> that to me was really, really important. So um, I'd ask, you know, a bunch of questions on the phone call, like, you know, what's the most enticing aspect of the event that makes you want to sign up, and those kind of things. And ultimately, uh, after every phone call. They had to a be an entrepreneur. Like that was a non-negotiable. I wanted only to serve entrepreneurs. Um, but after every phone call, I asked myself, would I want to have dinner with this person? And if the answer was no, I didn't care how successful they were on paper. Um, I'd refund their money. And for that first event, even though you know I was a quarter million dollars in debt, then you know another eighty-four thousand dollars in debt. That's before mm-hmm. we booked the venue and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we refunded forty-eight thousand dollars in paid tickets for that first year. And I didn't know if that level of curation would pay off, but ultimately that turned out to be the key to our success. Cause we did that first event, you know, Tim, all the speakers stayed the entire duration of the event, which created a a really unique environment where normally speakers come out from behind a set of curtains, do their talk and then leave. So Tim was in the audience like everybody else. And then when that event was done, we had 15 speakers. Ultimately when we decided to do a second event, 10 of those speakers came back as paid attendees the following year. And after, after a few more kind of iterations, Uh, Our year three, a year four event specifically, we sold out four months in advance without announcing any agenda, any speakers. And that's when I realized people are not coming to the event for content. They're coming for community. And that's really when we we started to double down on the peer-to-peer model uh, of Mastermind Talks.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't
0: get in the way of
1: life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, and I mean, this has turned out to be one of the world's most exclusive events for entrepreneurs at this point. Like, moving from 2013 to 2018, this thing has a lower acceptance rate than Harvard University. Um, which is unbelievable. Um, how has the curation process changed or has it?
0: The, one of the biggest factors was we stopped taking applications. Uh, and I shouldn't say that cause we still take applications on the website, but we in full transparency, we don't look at them. Um, and the reason for that is because, uh, and we haven't for the last three years. And the reason for that is because finding great entrepreneurs, or great people in general uh, is like finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, some people th- throw up a WordPress website and consider themselves an entrepreneur. It's such a loose term in today's day and age that there's just a ton of bandwidth um, that we allocated to try to like vet people or do that initial kind of passive vetting. And since then we've had over 17,000 entrepreneurs apply. So that's the first thing we kind of got rid of applications or don't focus on them. Really what we focus on is nominations. So I'm a firm believer that amazing people know other amazing people. So my core focus is always to offer an incredible experience. And if you do that effectively, then people will naturally want to tell their friends about it and naturally want to get their, their friends involved. Um, And that's really been our driver. Um, You know, we we offer, usually we only allow half of our community, or half of the attendees to come back. And, uh, you know, for our next year's event in 2019, we're offering uh, 75 spots for that um, and 75 kind of new spots. And we usually get about three, three to four hundred nominations a year. Um, plus, there's people that I, I meet on my own, people that I host that come across my radar at dinners and those kind of things. Um, and then one of the key parts of curation now is that you can't be um, – I, I, I won't sign off on having somebody at MMT unless I meet them in person. To me, even like phone calls have been, I mean, they're, they're good. You can get a lot of contacts on a phone call, but for me, when I meet somebody, I can know within 30 seconds if they're the right fit or not. That doesn't
1: mean webcam. That means you're actually physically meeting them.
0: Physically meeting them, yeah. So they have to come to a dinner because you want to see how people interact right. um, and those kind of things. And also, you have to take into account like people are anxious and you know social environments and those kind of things. There's a bunch of factors like that. But um, you know, it's there's there's I, I value this community immensely, and the last thing I want to do is is expose them to any liabilities. And although we haven't really done that, to me, there's an opportunity cost. You know, if I have somebody who's a bad fit. At MMT, it's taking the opportunity away from somebody who would be a good fit and would get great value from the experience and would be able to contribute as well. So, you know, we cap our events at 150 people, and I take yeah that curation process. It's it's all that we have in the marketplace. You know what I mean? Like we can't compete with TED when it comes to the quality of speakers or production or sponsorships or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we simply can't. But the the one thing that we can compete on, and I think we do a better job than than almost anybody else out there in the space. Uh, is the curation and building that sense of community.
1: So when you say you cut half, right, going from year to the next, mm-hmm. that's a like that's a big number. Like, how do you suss out whether or not fifty percent of the audience in twenty eighteen is or isn't going to be suitable for the following year?
0: Yeah. So that well, so historically, until two years ago, it used to be a third. So, we only allowed a third of the attendees to come back. Hmm. And for us, when you have success in this industry, the common strategy to scale is more events or bigger events. And for us, instead of scaling in size every year, we scale by raising the caliber of people in attendance. So, just because you were allowed last year doesn't mean you're necessarily allowed back. And we scale the price as well. So, you know, our first event was like a thousand bucks, our last event was $10,000. So, it's gone up to 1,000 to 3,000 to 5,000, 7,500 to 10. Next year is going to be 12,000. So it's, it's gone up kind of every year. That's been our, our model. But the one thing was is that, um, you know, we always, we didn't, uh, haven't always positioned this, but over the last couple of years, we really positioned it as a community because that's ultimately what it is. But then I thought to myself, well, how much of a community is it if you knock out the bottom two thirds every year? <laughs> so. So that so that's why we allow half the people to come back now, and we're kind of exploring what that kind of looks like because uh, the one thing that anybody who's been to our events can attest to is that the quality of people in attendance gets better year over year. Like that's that's always been the always been the case, and that will continue to be the focus. So, but yeah, it's it's not an easy process. I mean, for this last event, uh, again, we were offering seventy five spots. We had one hundred and forty three people handing credit cards uh, for those seventy five spots. So, um, that curation is, is not necessary. It's not easy. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's the most difficult part of the, of the business, but it's also crucial to our success. Yeah. So the
1: other part of the business. So, um, in terms of how you get inspiration for ideas for Hmm. the the event format, like where do you look to what other events around the world do you attend in order to get inspired?
0: Yeah. uh, I don't attend a lot anymore. I did at one point in time, but And this would have been like I was obviously an EO, dabbled with YPO, um, was in a group called Joe Polish's 25K group, and he has an event called the Genius Network and a strategic coach and that kind of stuff. For me, I, I kind of focus on a, a couple areas. One is the whole notion of, of community. I mean, that's something obviously we, we doubled down on. Um, so what I've, I've learned about you know, our industry is that how you run a community is exactly how you run a company of the same size you know, the importance of like, not only the curation. So uh, similar to like, when you hire somebody, you ensure that there's a core values fit before a skill set fit, because if you don't have core values, they're ultimately a wrong fit for for the organization. So very similar with us, we can always kind of tighten up that curation process. Uh, Once they're in the community, very clear core values. And, you know, should there be any issues you take, you literally, again, how you run a company of this size is exactly how you run this, this community. So there's, there's the whole notion of culture and improving culture and, and those kind of things have, has, has, just been a, a big area of focus for me. Um, and then also, um, experience design. So, uh, again, our events tend to be rather high touch. There's a saying that, um, business like life is all about how you make people feel it's that simple and it's that hard. And that's the one thing historically we've done really good, you know, in our industry is, is making people feel, special, unique, and, and seen, ultimately, during our live experiences. So that's an area we're always looking to improve upon as well. So that's um, super
1: difficult, right? Like people have different emotional triggers. That must be very, <clears throat> very challenging.
0: Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And there's always ways to, to do that. We do that from simple things like uh, we'll ask them, we'll have this intake form with like 80 questions that they have to fill out before our live experience. And sometimes we'll throw in a question there like, You know what's what's your favorite snack or something like that? Like, what's your guilty pleasure or something? And one year we surprised everybody with whatever that item was. Literally, everybody went out for a break. They came back, and all their favorite items were on the table. So that's like one example of of you know making people feel kind of seen and valued. Um, You know, creating a very much a a peer to peer environment uh, also enhances that as well. It's almost like plays into the whole IKEA effect. Of like when people contribute to something, they're more bought into its value, so to speak. Um, That's another way we do a lot of stuff in the off season where we try to pay attention to people's wins. Um, So if they're in the media, they got an award, uh, those kind of things, we praise them within the online community. So that's definitely a big focus for us. And that's always a almost like a guiding mantra in the back of my head, that business like life is all about how you make people feel. It's that simple and it's that hard. So from an inspiration perspective, we don't draw necessarily inspiration from Ted unless there's anything on that to either, that they do well on, when it comes to fostering community or making people feel seen. Actually never, you know, truth be told, I've never articulated it in that fashion uh, until you brought up this question. So this is this is super helpful to me because uh, because uh, people ask us all the time and yeah, I don't get a lot of inspiration from other events.
1: Well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, Can you think of a couple of unbelievably great in-person experience that you've had outside of MMT that have sort of triggered something emotionally for you that sort of stands out in your mind as being unbelievable?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's the whole notion of if you want to care about somebody care about who they care about. Um, And what I mean by that is I can give plenty of examples. Um, You know, when I was at the four seasons in Mexico, um you know we go to check in and uh on our bed or on my daughter's bed is like a plush toy and like these sponges that have her name kind of spelled out and it has they have this like little kids robe and slippers and all that kind of stuff. And to me, that's an incredible customer experience. Like it's 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 almost hard to wow me on some level mm-hmm. because you know I'm staying at the Four Seasons and those kind of things. And it's very common to like want to wow you know the, your client so to speak. But going a, a a connection beyond that and wowing their spouse or wowing their their children, I think is is oftentimes it's untapped. Another example of this is like my, my favorite, my daughter's favorite uh, grocery store is Sobeys. And I share that because the reason for that is because they have little kids carts. So we go shop at so- Sobeys, even though it costs more, I don't necessarily like Sobeys, but we go there because they make my daughter feel special because they make her feel kind of, you know, included in the process. Um, same thing when you go to like, uh, oh, we've stayed at five heart star hotels all across North America, but my daughter's favorite hotel by far is the Chelsea hotel in Toronto, which is a, a three-star hotel at best. And the reason for that is when you go to check in, they have a little kids' check-in section where the kids go up, they walk up these steps, and then there's a, like a treasure chest, and they get to pick a, like a, a 50-cent plush toy out of there. Um, but that's why we go, every time we come to Toronto, we're staying in a hotel, we stay at the Chelsea Hotel. I want to
1: rewind back to something you said earlier about the curation process and, and meeting face-to-face. So you sure. said that you know within seconds or minutes... Whether or not somebody's going to be a fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm guessing a large part of that assessment uh, is emotional. And there's probably some sort of like, um, you probably have this authenticity radar going at all times <laughs> when you're meeting with them. Um, sure. How do you suss out whether or not you think somebody's going to be a potential fit? And I guess the, the second part of this question, or, or the more carefully curated part of this question, is how do you know whether or not? This person is "quote unquote" fake versus authentic.
0: Oh boy! Well, I mean, I, I like MMT is mastermind talks is not scalable and it's not scalable by design. but like I still do all the curation, and yes, I could put pen to paper and create processes and systems to you know have somebody on my team potentially help qualify, but ultimately um, nothing has served me better than just a gut test. Uh, and like I said, I can get that gut test like. To be considered, you have to be nominated through somebody in our community. So there's always already that social proof there. Weeds out a ton of people right out of the gate. The acceptance rate on applications when we did look at applications was 0.4%. <laughs> the acceptance rate on nominations, I think, is 88%. Hmm. Um, and that's actually going to go down because we're changing our, our criteria uh, in the future. But what are you changing it to? So the, the whole notion of, because before, like Mastermind Talks used to be like fascinating entrepreneurs. And I mean, there's other criteria beyond that, but like they had to be an entrepreneur and they had to be fascinating on some level. Again, like I had to answer the question, would I want to have dinner with this person? Ultimately, we have like a community of like, after you do a few iterations and we've done six, you have a community of entrepreneurs and they're all fascinating on some level. So you need to ask yourself, well, what's that next step? And for me, I'm a firm believer that all problems can be solved with the right peer group. And I want to and have been in the process of building out almost like the ultimate quote unquote peer group for entrepreneurs, meaning um, that when somebody comes and joins MMT, if they want to publish a book, we have somebody who's in the like the top 1% of book publishing. If you want to market a book, they have, we have somebody who's in the top 1% of that. If somebody is having a struggle with their partnership, but there's two or three people I can refer to them for that. If they're, you know, they want to explore franchising there's two or three people I can refer to them to that. So, so basically it's almost like uh, Jim Collins is whole like seats on the bus mentality. So people that may come our way in the future, they may be great. They may be fascinating, but do they actually fill? do they level up any of the seats on the bus?
1: But let me ask you about some of these practical everyday practices that you have in place in terms of building your own network. Anything you can share on that front?
0: Yeah. Um, a handful of things. So one, um, Amazing people become increasingly amazing over time. And I share that because, you know, in most kind of entrepreneurial circles, everybody wants to be connected with the Richard Bransons of the world and the Elon Musk and the, you know, Tim Ferrisses, let's say, but they're not looking for any more friends. Um, and it's, there's a lot of noise at the top. For me, I get a lot more joy investing in a rising star, so to speak. And investing doesn't have to be financial, it could be just, you know, connections, resources, or just belief. Like I think we can all look back on a time when, you know, somebody believed in us when we didn't necessarily believe fully in ourselves, and how much real estate they they have in our heads and in our heart because of that. So to me, like I had a phone call today on the way in uh, to Toronto, like a 40-minute phone call with somebody who's, you know, an up-and-comer. Actually, I had two phone calls actually now I think of it with like two people that are just really really promising, and I almost look at how people invest in businesses. I try to invest in people.
1: I remember you had a system of like tracking 150 names or something like that.
0: Dunbar's number. Uh, and basically that's been proven time and time again through, through scientific research that, um, mm. from a, a, cognitive perspective, uh, we can only have roughly or manage about 150 social ties. So, um, You know, that on some level can be amplified a little bit, you know, through social media, through CRMs and that kind of stuff. But I don't know anybody who has a swath of relationships um, that uh, does a great job at nurturing them all across the board. Uh, It just doesn't happen. So for me, I break down kind of my network and really my bandwidth into different categories. And that first category is like my core relationships. So I usually have about five or six people that occupy those core relationships because, you know, oftentimes we're under this illusion that we have, you know, because we have a thousand Facebook friends, you know, that they're good friends, right? And that's not necessarily uh, always the case. So there's a a study done by Keith Ferrazzi, who wrote a book called Who's Got Your Back? And in that book, they researched, uh, they interviewed a thousand people at random and asked them, who has your back? Or do you feel like anybody has your back? Uh, And surprisingly, 55% of people felt like nobody had their back. Even more surprisingly, 60% of those people were married. So, we live in a time where social isolation is a huge problem. And again, because of social media and that kind of stuff, people are oftentimes under the illusion that they have, you know, relationships, but it doesn't matter how many friends you can count. It matters how many friends you can count on Poor relationships are people who would not let you kind of sleep on the street, so to speak. Um, and then I have connectors. There's basically five or six categories, but ultimately 150 people from a social cognitive perspective is, is really our limitation uh, from an evolution. Uh, From an evolutionary perspective. So uh, we haven't found a way to beat it. Again, we fall under these illusions that we can beat it with social media and that kind of stuff, but uh, it proves there's a ton of studies that just proves it's not the case.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I actually pulled three or four mutual friends of ours, uh, who've been to MMT and asked what questions (laughs) should I ask Jason? Oh bye. Um, so in the last few minutes,
0: that's getting Interesting.
1: In the last few minutes, I got to ask you these few questions on the behalf of others. So the first one, how did you meet Tony Hawk
0: charity auction? So, uh, I've done this before where to get access with, uh, and I wonder if the person asking this question actually knows the backstory. Probably not. Um, but I, um, one of the ways, so a friend of mine named Steve Sims has a company called Bluefish, mm-hmm. and they're one of the the most well-regarded kind of concierge firms um, in North America. So, if you want to, you know, uh, meet Elton John, or you know, if you want to have dinner at the Vatican and be serenaded by Andrea uh, Andrea Bocelli, like that's the type of experiences they put together. And one of the things I got from him was that the way they 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 facilitate a lot of these experiences and get their foot in the door with these celebrities um, is uh, going through their charities and making some kind of contribution. So uh, with Tony, I did something similar. I think I contributed to his Tony Hawk Foundation and then which builds like skate parks in at risk kind of areas. And uh, ended up, I, I think the package we we figured out was just we were gonna go like meet him at his place in Calabasas. Um, and after that parlayed that to, to have him at uh, at MMT. Um, there's a few people like big names that I've kind of built relationships with in the same, the same way. I kind of go through their foundations to do like a lunch, like Chip Wilson, Wilson was one of them, um, from Lululemon, same, same exact thing. I, you know, did a contribution to go on a hike with him and then slowly start to build a relationship from there. Um, so cool. I've, I've used that technique quite a few times.
1: Hmm. What's the most meaningful conversation you've ever had at an MMT event? <laughs> These aren't meant to be easy, by the way.
0: No, well, good job. Um, I, I think the most meaningful, and it wasn't even a conversation, it's just, it's a very top of mind and by far was the most impactful thing we ever did at our live experience was this uh, this activity called Step to the Line. Mm-hmm. And basically how it works, it was facilitated by a friend of mine named Cat Hoke, who, uh, ran an organization called The Five Ventures, which helps men and women transition out of the prison system into entrepreneurship. And they have a great success rate. And we've had some of their uh, graduates come to MMT on scholarship. I've actually, uh, last year I went, oh, for my birthday, actually, I, I donated, quote unquote, donated my birthday. And 30 of us went, it went to prison on my birthday to mentor um, some of these individuals. And while in prison, she facilitated the step-to-the-line activity. And basically how it works is um, there's a line kind of dividing the room, and then people step on both sides of the line. And uh, when she says a statement that rings true, uh, you step to the line. And, you know, in the context of that prison, it was, you know, who here heard a gunshot before the age of 10. And inevitably all the inmates stepped forward, All the vol- no, like none of the volunteers stepped forward. Or who here grew up, you know, in a single family home. All the inmates step forward, none of the volunteers stepped forward. Uh, Who here, you know, grew up in a home where there was less than 10 books? All the inmates step forward. So it was just a really powerful visual exercise. And you go through like a a slew of questions and they they get more vulnerable and more intimate as you go along. And we did that at, at Mastermind Talks. And, you know, we had questions like, you know, 2018 has been my most challenging year. And then you see people step forward that you know are close friends that you wouldn't necessarily expect that to be the case, or you know, I struggle with depression or those kind of things. And halfway through the exercise, people were bawling, like absolutely bawling imagine. broken open. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. So that was far more impactful than any conversation we've ever had. But when you when you made mention of like what's more more impactful things, that's that's definitely it for sure. Okay, last question. Super, super difficult one.
1: What's the deal with sourdough bread? What's the
0: deal? Sourdough bread's amazing. You know, it's funny. I actually had a a conversation. I was interviewed for a podcast probably two months ago. And I know Tim Ferriss asked this question on his podcast. It's like, what's a a purchase that you've made recently? A hundred dollars or a hundred dollars or less or something like that. That has brought like a lot of joy or something. Uh, And I said, proofing baskets. (laughs) That's the first Mm -hmm. thing that came to mind. Because they were expecting some kind of like app or like, you know, mac attachment or something like that. Uh, and I said proofing baskets. Um, no, I just, I, I don't know. I got into sourdough baking. Um, I did a class and just fell in love with it. I have very much like an addictive personality. So, you know, I used to be very big into martial arts and did that sometimes twice a day. Um, mm. and then I, yeah, I, then it was, you know, I, that showed up in business that showed up in other hobbies. Um, and then most recently with, with sourdough and it's, it's one of those things. It is. Uh, it is, uh, dude, I can't, I'm speechless. It's, it's it's amazing. I mean, I do it two, three times a week. There's so many different variables. You have to definitely relinquish the whole notion of control because you don't know how things will turn out. There's there's a surprise and delight element to it. It's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful craft and it's not easy by any stretch. So you just have this huge appreciation for artisans. And it's funny because right across the street from here, there's a place called Sud North. I think it's called, or Sud Forno, Sud Forno, um, which is like a Italian- bakery and they have this wall of like breads. And to me, I'm like, this is like me walking into a museum. Like it's the most (laughs) beautiful thing is like seeing these breads because I know they're not easy to make and they're just absolutely beautiful and absolutely just unique. So uh, yeah, I can go on and on about sourdough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jason. So in the last few minutes, um, where do you want to point listeners to for more information on obviously mastermind talks? We didn't even get to the podcast, uh, but I'll mention community made. um, And of course your book mastermind dinners, where can people find out more about you?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, um, I kind of shot an arrow at the application process for Mastermind Talks. So <laughs> you can go to mmt.community uh, and you know uh, apply there. If you do know somebody who's been to Mastermind Talks, again, that'll take you uh, a much longer way. Our 2019 event sold out, and we're focusing on 2020 soon. Um, yeah, I have a podcast called Community Made, and it's a season-based podcast. So season one was all about the notion of scale, Um, and I have a kind of almost like an anti view on scale. Uh, but I also brought on guests that, you know, have scaled really large companies to kind of challenge me that, uh, challenge me on that notion. Uh, season two is all about relationships. So everything I know about relationships, um, from how to network at events as an introvert to, uh, you know, having a mentor mentee relationship and structuring that effectively, uh, can all be found in that podcast community made. Uh, and besides that, uh, the usual, usual kind of social channels. If you want to see my sourdough bread, just go to Instagram, <laughs> Jason Gaynard. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, nothing, nothing necessarily. I want to point them to
1: specifically. That's your next business, by the way. Uh, I,
0: I saw, a bakery, saw a bakery for sale recently. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. I got, you don't have to I got, scale
1: it. You can keep it mom and pop.
0: Exactly. Well, I have big things on the horizon with, uh, with MMT and a new organization that I'm launching. So, uh, Yeah. Sourdough may have to wait a little bit, so I'll I'll keep
1: it as a hob. (laughs) All right. Sounds exciting. Um, Appreciate you taking the hour, Jason. This was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on.
0: I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, man.
1: Okay. We'll talk. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in
1: part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count
0: with whatever it is you're working on.